0: entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hello, and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. And this week, I'm delighted that I've got two guests who are authors of a fantastic book. They're both L&D and people professionals. So I have Chris Yates and Linda Jingfang Kai. And the book that we're going to hear a little bit about um, is the principles about how organizations can thrive. Um, we'll put all the links to the book in the show notes. But it's been very interesting because both of these people are really established international uh, people professionals, and we'll look a little bit into their various backgrounds and, and, and background that they've worked in. And it's the core of this is about how how we need to put empathy at the centre of our organisation, how we need to give people um, both the will and the skill to do this, and how we as HR professionals can use certain structures to maybe diagnose the culture of our organization and see where there might be mismatches in the sorts of HR activities that we're um, putting into play, and they may not always fit with the culture. So I'm really interested to hear um, from these two experts who have so much experience to share. I hope we can get as much of it as possible into the, web, into the podcast. Um, uh, Chris and Linda, welcome. Really great to have you on. Just very briefly, if I could just get, Chris, could you just go first, give me a potted history of your background, and then we'll go and hear a bit from Linda, and then we'll hear more about your work.
1: Sure. Um, so I trained originally as an occupational psychologist, industrial psychologist. Um, I'm from London. I'm a huge QPR fan. I have to get that in every time I talk about <laughs> that. For um, your sins. Exactly. Um, I've worked in the NHS. I worked at Canon um, in HR roles. I did a big stint with American Express, uh, both in Asia, in Australia, uh, London, and New York. Um, I then joined HSBC, uh, working out of Canary Wharf in a role as the group head of organizational development, had my own consulting business, um, joined Caterpillar, the heavy manufacturer as the chief learning officer, and now I'm at Microsoft as the general manager of learning development.
0: Okay, that's quite, a- and along the way also, I understand you were involved in, you were in a 9-11, you were in a Organization in one of the towers was that right? You were right in the center uh, of 11?
1: Well, I was at American Express, so our building was literally the building next door. So our building uh, was hit by the other one of the towers hitting our building. Wow!
0: First. And at BP during the or- Orsville crisis. So I mean, you've d- had d- a few that's dramas,
1: a <laughs> <way>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right? So that's great. Thank you, Chris. And then Linda, do you want to give us a little bit of an introduction from, about yourself too? Yeah,
2: thank you, Lucinda, for the opportunity to come here and engage. Um, I'm Chinese, as you probably can tell from my name and my accent. But I have lived um, on three different continents, primarily in the in the West, for the past twenty years. So my first half of the my career was a management consultant. I believed modeling financial analysis will bring out the best of organizational performance. But really, um, financial crisis in two thousand eight was a wake up call, and after that, I um, Started more doing culture and the leadership work, um, one of the things that Chris and I started talking about through our work at HSBC after 2008 was around um, the um, kind of competitive nature of um, the West, as well as how capitalism is becoming so um, so much driven the com- com- uh, the planet into a uh, crisis. So we gel very well because we all had a little bit different cultural background, and we started putting a lot of personal observations and life experience into what you are going to read in the book. Um, so in terms of profession, I now run the global learning and talent development for AM, based in Chicago. I'm married to... Uh, an American man so my family is cross-cultural and yeah so looking forward to sharing with you all what um,
0: we have written. Yes I'm, I'm looking forward to it because certainly you've got a real breadth of experience between you and you're both practicing um Professionals, And as you know, uh, what I really like to do on this podcast is, if possible, make sure there are real practical reflections and takeaways that people can do. Clearly, people can read your book for themselves. It's not going to stop them doing that and we'll give them the links. But I think there's some great themes um, when I was talking to Chris earlier about this in terms of how it came about. And I says, and also the way in which it's, it's so particularly pertinent right now. Obviously, you wrote it well before you knew the coronavirus was going to come along, but the, the relevance is really high, isn't it? Um, in terms of of how it came about, I think we t- t- talked about this about this concept of sharing and hoping hope. I think we were talking about earlier, Chris, wasn't it? Would you like to just give us a bit of that perspective?
1: Uh, so I think we were both very excited initially about the rise of Uber and Airbnb and what we call these share based economy uh, models, and we wanted to take the idea of if you could share things um, easily. Um, uh, in terms of uh, capital assets, um, how can we expand that as a kind of way of life? It seems a very interesting thing. I think, interestingly as well, living in the Midwest of America, which is a real strong neighborhood community type feel, um, If uh, how could we get people sharing stuff and, and build up? I think as we got into it, though, uh, from that piece of hope, we found more and more, as we started talking to people in, in those businesses, uh, it was not so pleasant because the people at the top of the organization were in some ways... Um, a little exploitative in terms of how things were being used, You're using someone else's assets, and we saw the rise of, you know, people who worked for Uber, people in Uber being saying, "Hey, I, I would like more rights. I would like more say. I would like more," um, in terms of the value created from the model coming out. And so, sharing as a core concept wasn't at the basis of how those models were being designed. So we saw the gap, and then I think we took it from that to what we saw happening in the Midwest around us, and. Uh, that kind of drove the book to this empathy core um, that we've talked a lot about.
0: So you're saying, just explain a bit more for, um, for us, whether it's yourself or maybe Linda, the whole point about empathy being the core premise. You, you, your original one, you thought it was going to be about that, the sharing idea, the sharing, but actually when you looked more deeply, it was really kind of capitalist and possibly quite selfish, the opposite of sharing. When, so you flipped it, did you? And, and then realised that actually empathy was the key, the key driver to the next stage? Yeah, I can uh, add some perspectives. I think that the
2: backdrop for the book really is the fourth industrial revolution. And even before COVID-19, we observed this tension between, you know, human-centric approach versus technology adoption, right? The focus on productivity and efficiency, the need to adopt more technology, but the fear and anxiety of job loss of not able to upskill and be able to redeploy. Um, so the economic opportunities might not be evenly spread across uh, different population. Um, so there, it was there already. What we saw in COVID-19 was amazing. So there are two things. One is technology uh, adoption is actually accelerated, right? We read that grocery stores Um, using robots to restock because of the the, the concern. Um, Drones are used to do contact tracing, etc. And that will probably continue. Most people learn remote working technologies and they are forced to in a way, but that will accelerate. But on the other hand, we saw amazing stories how people connect on on a human level even they can't you know, be in first-handed contact with each other, even they are separated. This empathy comes through, empathy towards um, patients, to- towards uh, underprivileged um, communities, unprotected populations, towards uh, frontline health workers. There's empathy everywhere. People bond naturally. So if we apply the same thinking to reflect on the book, what we were talking about is uh, a really em- empathy driven approach to relook at most organizational processes, particularly people related processes that HR has huge influence on. Uh, we think that needs to deepen, uh, particularly what we learned from COVID 19.
0: I think that's a very interesting observation because one of the things that I would notice in the last sort of six to eight weeks in terms of moving. Out, out to more remote working and sort of taking away this facade of of how we do things and the normality is that you needed. It was much more important to find out how people were doing. So your point about starting with the person, the human bit, I think it's been a priority to see how people are emotionally, and we know that will continue to be the case. Whereas we'd almost kind of stripped out emotion or empathy, you know, out of it was it was more transactional, and I, and I can't see as being able to go right back to that sensibly. And and that sounds sort of what you're saying, is it? Chris, you, did you want to comment?
1: Yeah, I think it's su- such an interesting observation. You know, the, I was talking to a colleague uh, recently um, and they're saying the same equipment that we have as human beings um, hasn't changed a lot for several hundred thousand years. And yet we've imposed this kind of uh, new technology civilization in seconds relatively from a, a development perspective. We are wired to be empathic. Yeah. We, we grew up in tribal groups. Uh, we're wired to look for threats, et cetera. And so you're absolutely right. One of the most important things we've learned in virtual working is the opportunity to bring the human first, to be able to connect uh, with the emotions, to be able to connect with people. Are. And it's all sorts of studies. You know, th- These are practices that came out of um, both aircraft for pilots, but also surgeons in terms of how you're emotionally checking, and they showed that you're much likely to actually perform with the machine better if you're emotionally connected and actually free of distractions, and you do that by acknowledging, you know, where are you, how are you, what's distracting you. So, to five minutes, ten minutes is a very practical tip uh, for anyone working virtually right now or for any HR professional. That human connection is actually what's going to lead to business success, to enabling virtual working to work more effectively. Huge aha.
0: But why did I mean the interesting thing there that I thought about that is, is checking in is that previously, um, it probably wouldn't have been okay to say, do you know what? No, actually I'm really stressed the high hilt because my kids are fighting downstairs or, you know, banging doors as they happen to be. Um or, you know, you, you it wasn't appropriate to bring in that home work blend. You had to put a brave face on it. So therefore, go, oh yes, I'm absolutely fine. I don't know whether that will stay because I just that feels different in terms of what these circumstances actually help mean. We we are able to be whole people, whereas you might have said that before um, in the workplace, but people somehow weren't. You had this distance imposed. That's absolutely right, Lucinda. I think the book, uh, in the book, we tried and we definitely hope
2: to continue the dialogue with many readers is um, trying to give uh, an approach how do you facilitate that change even without another crisis, right? Uh, Even when we are going back to kind of the new norm, um, you are not bringing kids or cats or dogs, what have you (laughs) into the background anymore. How do we do that? And and really for um, organizations and societies, there are different levels of implication in addition to the individual uh, um, implication so how do we do that collectively? So I'm sure, uh, Chris, you have more to add.
1: No, I, I, I think, like so many, I've been an avid reader recently of, you know, the great plagues through our time and all of the lessons, what we've learned. And this is, again, one of the things early in the book, that we saw this opportunity right now. Um, after every major revolution, after a major plague, we've seen societal change. You know, one of the things we were talking about earlier with Cindy was mm. the, the Black Death you know, and how that brought, you know, that kind of freed everybody from serfdom in Europe. So everyone was owned by the lord of the manor, as it were, uh, until the Black Death came along, there was a skill shortage, and suddenly we had to start paying people salaries. Um, after the World War One and the Spanish flu, we had unions, healthcare, um, ideas of, you know, protective, a whole, all of these big societal shifts come at moments when we as humans are confronted by something like mass death, uh, yeah. and we, we actually pause, To reconnect as humans and so this is really a period of opportunity for us as hr professionals to challenge which is where i think you're going lots of the ways we show up at work how we think about workplace where is the workplace and how important is a family and who we really are in terms of how we connect with work moving forward so this really is going to accelerate i think the human in the workplace in a big way
0: yeah and i I really want to go into that i've thought when you told me that it's the first time I've, i've heard that the whole point about the black death and the plague it's like the original war for talent. Who knew that that's what we're all at I didn't realise. Now we all thought it was in the seventies or McKinsey or whatever it's coined it, but actually it was way back in sixteen hundreds. <laughs> So on that, though, flipping to part, um, I really liked the concept you were talking about. I'm not sure who wants to lead on it. But um, in terms of this whole principle of there being four ages of HR activities, almost, if we think about what we know, we know that maybe HR practices and management practices haven't changed a whole lot in the last 50, 60 years. But actually, you were saying there are sort of subtle differences and appropriatenesses maybe. Do you want to take us through that? Is that
1: you, um, I'll, 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 yeah, I'll, I'll jump in and Linda can help me. This is actually, I'll, I'll give him credit. This is based on some work by um, a colleague we both met some time ago called Simon Weston, who's written a lot about leadership. He, for his PhD, he talked about four phases. So the first was the kind of first industrial revolution where people were, well, most of us were leaving farms and coming into towns for the first time. Um, and there's something interesting there because we were highly skilled as people, we all made barrels or wine or. Uh, some reason I'm stuck with barrels of wine, but um, we we all had individual professions. And then we came into this factory age where we got de-skilled and we kind of worked in production. And we were were controlled and he calls that the controller uh, phase, which was, and a lot of HR practice still comes from that checking and the word management Mm -hmm. and concepts of management, Mm -hmm. control and hierarchy. In the post-war period, um, there was this kind of humanist side, which was kind of people came back from the war, they were saying, hey, I would like safety equipment, I would like PPE, that phrase that's now mm-hmm. in our, you know, phrase every day. Um, I would like a better wage, I would like a healthcare service. And, and we saw these things in the 30s, 40s in particular, as people came back. And so we saw a change of uh, motivation theory, who would have thought in the industrial age that a happy worker was a good worker, that Maslow and all of this stuff came out oh, as the yeah. second age. And that third age, you know, was the kind of Jack Welsh talentary, where I think a lot of Western companies were threatened by what they were calling the Asian tiger. And so new ideas of collectivist working, of culture, and then of there being a great leader, talent management. So, um, again, sort of what was happening in society changed that. And and we, you know, have talked about what, what Simon talks about in the work is this next stage, which is about networks. Um, because the whole idea, as Linda introduced, of the fourth industrial revolution is that we have this internet of things, that data flows between everything in our house to everything in our workplace to the machines that we use. And with mass data, you're then in a whole different way of thinking about leadership and organizations and how you work. So um, it's much more about who you are from the core and how you lead into a network. And so one of the interesting things is we've got HR practices from all of those different eras all being jumbled together. Uh, and we would say, without intentional um, opportunity, and there's an opportunity right now to to reground ourselves and rebirth a lot of those practices. And we think, based on empathy, to work in this network, Tara.
0: So that's a that's a really interesting concept as well. It's, i would likened it almost to maybe a maturity of an organisation, and you can maybe have a, a mismatch between your HR practices and the maturity of the organisation. And I, I suppose that'd be, I'd really interested to hear from both of you on, on this in terms of maybe how do you recognize where your organization is and help them progress? Because I mean, you can think even controller type stuff, you hear people, the lots of businesses said, you cannot work remotely. And some of that was about the whole presenteeism. If you're not in front of me, you won't be working type thing. So how can we, um, as HR professionals, sort of identify, or diagnose where our organization is and help them to increase maturity, if that's the right term? And also, are there any um examples where you obviously have worked with lots of organizations or just tangible um, examples where you've seen mismatches or seen things working really well that would illustrate those points?
2: Yeah. So, Lucena, I'll, I'll start and, um, and then Chris can jump in. I think you were spot on when you mentioned this um, mismatch between what CEOs and organizations expect and how prepared Or competent to some extent HR feels to deliver on those expectations. So um, culture is a prime example. Diversity and inclusion or equity type of work is another example. Increasingly, we see uh, top leaders turn to HR and want them to, you know, fix these things. Yeah. And we felt this is much broader than the typical processes, you know, procedures, policies that HR was good at. So, how do we solve for that? I think um, one thing we talked about is um, in the book is this um, holistic model, looking at from strategy, process, organizational structure, all the way down to how you uh, incentivize and reward people. So, I think it's uh, it's one of The organizational models, there are there are quite a few looking at different aspects and assess maturity, but that's one way to gauge where do you lack. To give you an example, a digital transformation program I led, um, we started assessing mindsets and behaviors right off the gate, looking at digital branding and operations, while we're also looking at how people are feeling where they feel like our culture needs to evolve in order to be digital. And we surface some very interesting areas such as flexibility, risk-taking, the way we manage talent, share talent across business units, uh, deploying them in the most um, efficient way, etc. So there are six areas the leaders feel like we, we are not confident you know, we can do this, but we really need to put pressure on developing those mindsets. We had a lot of conversations, and this is what I think people often uh, neglect with any type of technology or digital program, is how important people are with you, right? People feel they are equipped and enabled to operate in a new way. Uh, A typical example, and you probably have heard, is... Um, video conferencing. Um, Just pushing out a tool doesn't mean people will work flexibly. Um, Another example um, I talk often was this work-life balance, well-being, so ping-pong table everywhere,
0: but they they are still being measured by by productivity, so it doesn't really help. They're kind of superficial Uh, symbols though, aren't they? Things like ping-pong tables as opposed to actually what drives the culture from the inside out sorry Chris what were you going to say
1: yeah uh, so a, a current bugbear of mine is thinking of things um uh, here's here's one to, to your question of, of confused around the time so um we want to control things we want to control the employee experience from the controller and tell you how to feel mm. um we, we, we still from, from one age we have this idea of a happy worker is a good worker and I'm going to do I'm going to send you an employee poll or an employee questionnaire on a regular basis but I'm going to set the questions I'm going to interpret what's important to ask you about and I'm going to measure you on a scale and then we're going to have a working group and it's going to be owned by the management to tell you what I'm going to do. It's the old-fashioned suggestion stream in the box uh, from the factory environment. But yeah. yet we have tech, not technology now, which says we can crowdsource the best of ideas. And instead of thinking about satisfaction, what if we thought about it as citizenship? Because employees right now, if they're not talking to you on the questions that you've devised, they're talking on chat rooms, they're talking in in a a variety of platforms outside about the experience of working for you as an employer, what it feels like, Uh, they're filling in surveys online. And if you do something really bad, they're advocating, your own employees are advocating against you on a massive social media platform. So why not rethink the relationship with them? as citizens, co-citizens, colleagues, with less of a hierarchy feeling, saying, we're all in this together. I really want to hear the best of your ideas. Um, and then it's almost for a lot of managers, and, and letting go of ego, letting go of the sense of control and saying, I'm actually going to be able to work with you as opposed to control you. But that sent, letting go of that sense of control to allow empowerment to genuinely have empathy for what the workforce is feeling is a huge leap. Uh, for many HR teams and for many employers to take. And yet it's almost farcical because the employees have moved on because of the digital access to platforms to talk about stuff, but the organisations are still stuck in almost the factory mentality of wanting to control what the employees are able to talk about.
0: And that some of this comes down to there two things I was thinking. One is it's hard not to feel responsible. So if you're the HR person or the, the manager, it's hard not to feel responsible and, and or defensive, so when you're hearing that sort of thing, to to allow people to truly share that information and for you to go, OK, actually, how do we solve it together? Because it's also a bit, it's my job to fix it. And then the other thing is, I think there's a challenge because it's how do you make it tangible and measurable and demonstrate impact? So, I mean, I think we were, with L&D... In, professionals, um, all of us to a certain extent here aren't in terms of background. And one of the whole things was actually, if you're going to invest in something from an MD point of view, how do you demonstrate that you've actually made a difference? And then that means you end up probably using something like survey data or maybe competency data. How do you make it tangible in that new world in order to demonstrate the the um, investment and 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 maybe then you don't maybe that's old style thinking right it's in terms of a new empowering way so those sort of things are all quite tricky aren't they because you've still got to get that sponsorship from the top if you want to invest in your new development program or whatever it is but they might expect you to demonstrate value which might be counter to the model of sort of citizenship if you like I don't know
1: I know, but, but, but I think what we found in my in, in my practice at least is that once you take the risk of actually asking people, hey, what do you what do you think about this? Actually they have really good opinions. <laughs> and the best opinions actually come from the crowd. And by involving people early in the discovery process, um you get higher involvement. So, you know, one of the things we talked about in the book is this idea of starting with discovery of what does the employee base really think about that? You know, for me, from a professional perspective, that's been one of the things, sort of trying to let go of that power control ego and really yeah. embracing involving employees because they have—they we all have the best ideas and then you're utilising a thousand brains as opposed to three.
0: So when you do that, do you're... Just, you're d- sorry, Linda, come. No, uh, sorry. I was just... Uh,
2: um, I was going to add a, a, an observation. Um, there's increasingly increasing in this pull from our employees, that they expect um, leaders taking a more shared approach. So the recent data, I think it's in the UK, showed that 65% of the employees expect to be involved in company strategy in a meaningful way. And that's across generations, not only the millennials um, that we typically think have higher need in that. Uh, that's number one. And the number two is I think it's down to, you know, HR's role is not only managing people as a resource to be more efficient, but also being an advocate for employee uh, engagement and sentiment. I think, to Chris' point, I think that having a real pulse where people uh, are, uh, just through dialogue and conversation, sometimes is very important, if not more important to the survey data. And um, and the, the last thing I will add is, I see some very progressive companies already taking an approach of um, moving away from the typical retention, you know, thinking about employees as the ultimate outcome is I want to hand on to them. Yes, that's probably short term, but ultimately, if you look at the labor market as a share the pool, if we develop talent, yes, they might go somewhere. They they might also come back, but overall, we are developing more talent and more capabilities for the workforce and for um, for the society. And a case uh, in example is the Bitcoin used as a technology to track uh, learning. So if you learn certain things around digital um you could use Bitcoin technology to register as something you take from company to company um, as a standard kind of credential. So uh, that's just one of the examples that we are thinking more broadly as a society
0: investing in talent now um, in addition to company approach. More of an abundance type mentality about things not being threatened by people taking mm-hmm. their skills, skills out there, but yeah. still still developing yeah. uh, developing it. I think it's, it's quite a, it's still one of these things in terms, I suppose, where you see organizations when you're working with them, or maybe in your own experiences, because you both work with large corporates. And obviously, we've got listeners who are in smaller organizations and larger ones. I'm interested in how you make that work, particularly in a large one, because I can imagine that it's relatively easy to go and speak to everyone in an organization of 200 people. But how do you make sure that you're not doing, because the challenge I always think when you haven't got a structured process to gather feedback is that it's the usual suspects that you go to, which is probably slightly worse because you actually go and talk to the same people as your sounding board um, and you may not be getting a, a real cross-section of, of opinion. So without being old school survey then, is there a, what, what other tips have you got for people gathering that real temperature? And involving people,
1: I, I always advocate that you do—you don't just trust one particular channel. You do multiple things at the same time. Um, so um, you know, there's there's the old management by walking around, yeah. you know, which uh, the military and you know a lot of uh, industrial people you know do. Um, so there's the old make sure you are scheduling time to literally walk the corridors, find out, checking with people. Um, there's the having lunch, you know, as human beings, you know, from time immemorial, when we sit down and eat together, uh, we talk and uh, establishing that. I think um, there's the normal sort of town halls, asking for surveys, etc. Um, I think it's wise these days to be thinking and looking and uh, capturing what's being said about the organization externally, you know, and sort of listening to social media where people may feel they have safe um, and I think obviously then there's the myriad of internal channels in terms of listening channels that you can open up. I think what's most important at the back of that, though, is the genuine intention, mm-hmm. and so the regular dialogue to come back and say, I hear you, I'm interested, because then even for the far corners, the cynics who are going to be like, whatever, yeah. um, if you if, if you stick with it, eventually you'll find someone says, well, actually, you know, that last thing you said, um, I've got an opinion about that, and then you've got to welcome that. However... Um, obnoxious that opinion might be, uh, or very different, you know, and I think one of the things right now that we're faced with, because in many parts of the world, we're seeing increased polarized societies with uh, very different views on a matter of things, um, which is a different type of diversity for us to embrace. Um, How we listen to everybody's view is the only way we progress. Uh, to yeah. kind of stop that polarization. And especially within organizations, we've got to have that open mind. So I actually think it starts with going back to the empathy first, genuineness, and then you basically using multiple channels.
2: So a good example, I was in a, a Pulse survey, brief a results briefing. And um, so the presenter said, well, you know, it's very positive overall data. There are some comments, and of course, people who put down comments are more negative, so you know, we are not going to look at that. And I'm thinking you are missing a great opportunity. People who might appear negative but still took the time and energy to give you feedback probably still care and and they care deeply to see change. So that's, I think, to Chris' point, how you you ask, not only what do you do, how you do it, matters more um, but also how do we acknowledge our bias um, to self-select what we want to hear as Mm. HR professionals we need to almost be more courageous and putting the mirror in front of of our leaders in time of difficulty and making sure that they have that balanced understanding of the organization
0: at all times i totally agree and a lot of this you're talking about change it's so that i've i've just done i've done a book on change as well which is due out and courage is one of the key things about that for me is you, t- you have to be courageous um in lots of ways not only to actually confront your own short you know, your own sort of implicit biases as you say but also to challenge and sometimes to challenge people more senior than you um which can be that, that takes extra courage, if you like, um, in those those sort of circumstances to hold that mirror up. It's not to be underestimated um, as to you know that the challenge that that takes. So on your um, four structures as well. So you were starting to say that actually. So this, this, you've got a process, haven't you? Your four Ds, which I'll just I'll, so it's about discovering, defining, developing, and deploying. If you're coming up with something to to <coughs> put in place, do you want to give me a little bit more? take that through maybe as the example because obviously they're nice d's but you might want to explain them a little bit more for people the process they might follow
1: uh, i'll jump in first and i'll get linda to, to follow yes i mean for each one i'd say it's actually you sum it up really well in terms of it's the mindset and the courage at each one to do something different um discovery is really about um not quite crowdsourcing but this idea of really listening deeply uh to what's really going on right now and getting behind um uh The sentiment of of, of where people are. And I think that's important because you can understand the, what am I working with? And often if we don't take the time to be able to do that, um, it's just another PowerPoint deck that's imposed from from the kind of uh, top floor of the building. Um, In the second phase, the define, it's actually matching what's going on right now from the employee base, but also all of your stakeholders, and then matching against what's the corporate strategy that we're wanting um, to put together, and really thinking about um, how does what we're trying to do match with what's really going on? So it's kind of bringing an element of reality um, into it and in definition. In the develop phase, it's, it's a lot of what Linda just talked about, this kind of systemic holistic piece. So it's thinking, how do we make this everything? Because one of the most difficult things we find as humans, it's why you know virtual working is different right now, is because it's congruence. And this yeah. idea that um, I saw this brilliant thing on the BBC the other day, which so just like um, virtual working is so difficult because, you know, it's, it's throwing lots of things at the same time. How do I make sense of it? So how do you make sense of these things and think it's all of my HR systems, all of my people process, my finance systems, everything. How does this all align to what we've defined? And the last one, um, how do I actually deploy it so it doesn't feel like an initiative that's rolled out from the center, but I actually get ownership, I get ownership um, through having empathy. So we've talked about these things at the mm. level, and uh, I think what we're encouraging people to do is say there's a different way to how we drive change. So Linda, do you want to add anything to what I've put
2: down? Yeah, oh, just to say, it, it is very difficult to have one standard approach for yeah. every change and for you know big or small different companies. So what we intend to do is, the, the four steps is rather generic, but we wove into... Um, the steps a lot of success and then maybe not so successful stories how you do it and I think the art is in the execution back to what we talked about you know how you listen how you inquire how do you process the data you receive so I think um, just to add on to the point that as masterminds behind all these change programs the courage to your point, I really love that. I can't wait to read your book, Lucetta. The courage to take bias out of ourselves and to be as authentic and genuine uh, as possible, and to assist our leaders to also have the self reflection and to also allow emerging leaders coming from different corners of the organization and join.
0: Um, this effort is going to be really, really critical for the, for the overall outcome. And you're talking, it's interesting, the terms you've used, because I think it's, again, all about this empowerment. So to it's, it's, it's achieving results through others, isn't it? And with others, as opposed to doing mm. it to people, mm. which is... Okay.
1: I, 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 and I love that last point that Linda just made, this, this concept of emergent leadership. Because, you know, I think of one of the things in a network society is um, as HR professionals, as leaders, we often think I have to do it. I'm accountable. I'm mm-hmm. responsible. Mm-hmm. But actually success, success looks like someone else takes your idea and picks it up and says, I'm going to take this and turn it blue. And, let you, and how is your ego going to allow you to celebrate that and go, that's a win? Yeah. When I, well, someone else is owning it, someone else is doing it, because the power of the crowd is that other people are seeing the brilliance of your work, of your initiative, and they're making it real for them. Yeah. But how often do we then get threatened by that or do we try to control it? So it's the courage to let go.
0: It's the same principle as developing somebody in your team to um, you know, jump around you and become more senior than you as well, isn't it? Yes. Not trying to hold people down. And so having that... Taking and, and it's not having, you don't have to have the ego for it to be recognition for yourself personally. It's seeing that that idea has gone forward. And that's about being congruent with it and knowing that it's the right thing to do, believing in this this being a better way overall.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So I, I, I think we could talk on and on, but I, I, I would need to wrap up, I guess, in the next five, 10 minutes. But um, I was quite interested. I wonder if I could ask you both to come up with maybe an example from your vast experience as a pair of you. Chris I'm going to ask whether or not the diversity one that we spoke about earlier is appropriate um, or not just because I thought it was particularly impactful um, as whether it fits in here. I appreciate that's from a a book you wrote previously Um, uh, so you can decide if it's that one or otherwise Um, and yeah, Linda if you've got something just so you can maybe a a real example that we walk people through in the learnings from it because that'd be great to finish on that.
1: Um happy, happy to share that example. So uh, what Lucinda was asking about was some work that we did previously and then my first book, Rewire, which is really, again, involving people um, in a big way and thinking with empathy. It, it was really about the, the intentional use of what I would call propaganda, uh, but also empathy to say, who are you and how do we recognize you? And what we did was um, use basically advertising to say you look like the future. So if it was uh, working on LGBTQ issues or gender issues, putting images of people who look like us in the forefront and saying there's no reason that we can't uh, move forward. So really using simple ideas um, around uh, the psychology process of priming, of uh, flooding people with images um, to say you can do very different work on diversity just by um, selling the idea that difference uh, looks normal. I'm um, probably not doing it justice. There, yes, you're but, not. Not, not yeah. relative
0: to what you said. Just to go back, you did do the yes. discover bit, I thought, because what really yes. struck me was you 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 kind of, um, didn't you use the stat that something like uh, the, you did a management development programme or people went for a course and, and oh. suddenly all of the women or um, certain uh, candidates, uh, I, I think minority candidates, were ruled out and you found out why and it was to do with TV, wasn't it? Just expand on that bit because I think that was your discovery which then made you do something quite <laughs> radical.
1: Yeah, so we, we had an organization. We, we'd spent a lot of money. I'm not. I'm going to not name the organization. We spent a lot of money on traditional sort of women's programs and this kind of mentorship and stuff. Nothing had worked. And we found that in a downturn, a lot of the targets of the group have been kind of let go and disproportionately impacted. Um, and the work that we did, uh, which we talk about in Rewire, was really to intentionally um, use psychology techniques to basically use propaganda to say, this is what good looks like. Um, in a big way. And it worked. It worked phenomenally. Uh, We saw a massive turnaround where uh, we saw a change in the perception of women. We saw uh, the change in the perception of LGBTQ uh, people. And uh, it was almost people saying, I feel I can be recognized. I feel I can be myself. I feel I can be me in the organization by giving people permission uh, to be themselves um, because they've been highlighted um, in media. So it's the active use of media to actually say, this is what it looks like, rather than the kind of cardboard, you know, cut stock images uh, that we use often, tell people stories, and it brings a different feeling in the organization of empathy with massive uh, diversity. Um, I, yeah,
0: I, I was really surprised because I think your example you said at the start, you said that people had seen a black president um, on TV, yeah. wasn't it? You said that they, they could, yeah. before, two years before Obama went in, they said, well, I can visualise that because there's been one on 24 and I can't, wasn't, was it West, wasn't West Wing, was it? But it was towards, it
1: was, Yeah, towards was the West Wing they had a Hispanic, but yeah, there was a lot, a lot of research in the US, which we'd found, which said, asking candidates, so why did you vote for a black president with Obama? And they said, well, we had one in 24 and he was pretty good.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, You've created your own TV. you created your own internal TV programs, and suddenly people accept. It. I think that's mind blowing. Linda, if you've got an example, you'd you'd be happy to share.
2: Yeah, um, one of the culture change work um, that I was leading intended to bring different pockets of business together, really under one uh, unified mission and purpose. So um, I think there are two things remarkable in the approach we ended up taking. One is this emergent leader concept. So we heavily lean on informal influencers people who might not have the official title on the hierarchy, but are respected by their peers or their business leaders as advisors and influencers. We put them together as an advocate network. So one thing we debated in the beginning, but I'm not doing is giving them official um, to come up with their own script, how they talk about um the the mission and what we are together to accomplish. They are expected to um with their network to use themselves as examples um on the change process and to help and mentor others to come onto the journey. I think it really helped this personalized approach to yeah. bring people on. It might take longer, but the stories and experience were phenomenal coming out of that process. Um, and uh, the other thing I thought we did very well is acknowledging, you know, back to what we talked about this home and work blending together, what we heavily acknowledge is people's personal aspiration, um, what they want, what's their own story, the, the self, and how that fit into the organizational context. So we ask them to reflect on their legacy. We ask them to really go deeper under the iceberg, per se, to understand their own motivations and drives, and then see how they would show up differently for themselves and others. Uh, Again, it's a longer process, but it's a lot sustaining than just the painting the walls, or given them a, a few script to to read out aloud. So I really like those little things we did and which made a huge impact and difference.
0: Yeah, I like the, the whole sort of depth of it. Go on here,
1: Chris. Yeah, there's one thing, just building on Linda's point that we talk about a bit in that kind of Discover Defined phase, which is this whole idea, it's just a quick plug for something called Appreciative Inquiry. You know, as, so if your readers haven't looked at that, you were talking earlier about what's the quick tips readers can pick up, that whole, which is a part of what Linda's talking about, Appreciative Inquiry of really, Connecting with the individuals positively and getting mm. and sto- and getting storytelling massive impact from that and lots of projects.
0: Oh, that's, there's, there's, I feel like I could go on and on, couldn't we? And that, that whole piece of it's often um, slower is quicker in the long run, isn't it? That whole thing get under the iceberg, um, get the values, then you get a sustainable change, and people then also probably I think often often the lack of humility or. If you feel insecure, it's because we're trying to be something we're not. Whereas if you're comfortable as a leader, who you're being and what you're trying to achieve, then they'll be more genuine, we'll listen. um, And all those concepts of being able to share ideas uh, are much more appropriate. Guys, it's been fantastic speaking to you. Um, I look forward to speaking again, actually. Uh, But what I would say is just to wrap up the podcast, um, how would people contact you if they wanted to get hold of you? I'll start with Linda because I can see you in the screen first. What's the best route to get hold of you?
2: Yeah, feel free to reach out um, on my LinkedIn. Um, I'll I, put your links. We'll I put the links promise, to but, but I do check very regularly and I can send the send link as well to connect. Great stuff. we Will do. And Chris, well, how
0: do people get hold of you?
1: Similar. I would say go to our LinkedIn pages or profiles. We'd love to engage with anyone who would like to find out more.
0: Great. And we will put the links to your book, um, just, it, the, the full title is share how organizations can thrive in an age of network knowledge power and relationships is that right this that is okay great so we'll put the link to that as well which is available on amazon and it's available on kindle as well so that's fab so people can get hold of it there if they want to so thank you ever so much for the time it's, it's the end of the day here and it's the start of the day for you so have a great day and uh, thank you, I hope to talk again in future wish you lots of success with your book and work
1: thank you, it's been a pleasure listening Same thank you very you. much Thanks.
0: for having us bye. Pleasure. Okay. bye guys thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast you can access more information including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website www.hruprising.com also you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising we'd love to hear from you